All right, you guys, we do feel like we're going to tip over, like to the left. <laughs> it's weird. Um, if you guys got your weapons, Galatians, go to Galatians chapter 4. Um, one of the things I just love about the, the obviously, the, um, the service and the way it's put together is that we get this time where we got all these people that are coming up and they're, they're sharing. They're coming from different places um, in their life. There's different things going on with different people that they love, um, and then we get to cap that off after praying and acknowledging those things and, and going to God with them. We get to cap it off by all coming to the same table that no matter no matter what it is that's been said, um, God has spoken and God has given us truth and God has given us solution um, for whatever it is that, that we need prayer in, that we all get to come and we get to pull up a, a seat and we get to hear the same word of life that we all desperately need no matter what it is um, that, that we're going through. And so, um, it's neat that we get to go that, go there now. And it's also neat that God never fails in it. He never fails in it. Um, it doesn't matter if I'm having an on day or an off day. (laughs) Um, God's word is, is gonna, um, it's gonna go. The spirit's gonna move. Heart's gonna be penetrated. Minds are gonna be changed. He's gonna be glorified. We're gonna be brought to a right place because of what he said yesterday, today, and what he's going to continue to say until he comes and takes us home. And so it's really cool to be able to come and sit at the table right now. It's good to have you guys back, by the way, too. It's awesome. Um, this is a weird passage, so just bear with me. You know, It's probably not one of the ones you guys would have wanted to come in here, and uh, you'll probably wonder why you're here once I read it. But um, hopefully we'll get through that, and like I said, God will God will speak. We're going to close out Galatians chapter 4 today, and that will leave us with two chapters in the book of Galatians. So we're, we're moving through it. Um, there's one thing that's been established throughout this book so far. It's basically beat one drum. And that's justification through faith and not works. Um, I love how this book completely um, secures and stabilizes the real gospel, how one is really saved. That's why this book is so important. We're not Galatians. A lot of us aren't Jews, and a lot of us aren't Judaizers, and a lot of us haven't met one. But I think we can all relate in the struggle and the doubt that goes on over our salvation and who we are in Christ and what it is that accomplishes it. And that's why we need this book so bad. Is because this book hits that drum over and over again, and it stabilizes that you and I are now accepted, sinners accepted by a holy God based on faith in the work of Christ, plus nothing else, nothing else. And therein lays the hard part. This is the whole grace thing that I think John was just talking about. And I think we talked about it actually at Table Talk on Wednesday night. Great Grace is the weirdest thing. Even if we kind of get it here, um, I don't think it's anything that we as human beings um, can, can fully comprehend or accept, which is why we continually try to make up for what's free. At least I do. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a master at that. So um, what we see here is the Galatians got the gospel of justification through faith. A church was planted underneath that. People were saved. Paul left Galatia. Judaizers came in after him taught them a different gospel, which is a gospel of faith plus works. And these guys are buying it. 
They're buying it. They're, they're, they're being tempted right now. They're being provoked right now to go back into slavery and bondage, into that which cannot save. And that's why this book is so important. It's so important for us. It's timeless. We need this today. The church needs this, this message today, this stabilization today as much as they did then. And so today he's going to give an example, an Old Testament example of what it is he's talking about. All right. Let's go ahead and read uh, verse 21 to 51. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Verse 1-5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Okay, there's some crazy stuff in here. It's a little weird. Um, I'm gonna. I, I feel like what we need to do is we need to go back and we need to understand this narrative that's being talked about a little more, so that we can have more clarity in in, in what Paul's trying to say. So here's Genesis chapter 15, 16, 17, 18, and 21 in five minutes, maybe, maybe 10. So. Probably 10. All right. Chapter 15 of Genesis. Abraham complains to God that he has no heir. God comes to Abraham and he goes, how are you doing? And he's like, "Eh, okay. I still don't have an heir. I still don't have a child, right? He's like, I do have an heir, but it's not my child. It's Eliezer of Damascus. It's a dude that is just part of my family. In fact, I don't even know where he came from or who he belongs to, but he's my heir right now. God promises at that point not only that he will have a son, his son, as an heir, but that his offspring, he takes him outside, he says, look up into the sky and count the stars. And he can't. And he says, not only will you have a child that's yours, but the offspring of that child will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Crazy. Abraham asked God how he could know this to be true. How can I believe you in this? And God says, go get me three-year-old heifer, three-year-old goat, three-year-old ram, three-year-old turtle dove, three-year-old pigeon. Bring them to me. Cut them in half. Place them opposite each other. You and I are going to do business. We're going we're to enter into a covenant together. Okay? That's how you'll know. 
And we'll come back to that. That's chapter 15. 16, Sarah comes up with a brilliant idea. And Abraham buys it. In fact, it's not even like an argument or a competition, right? His wife's like, hey, I I got an idea to get you a son. How about you take my maidservant over here and um, go ahead and have a child with her? And he's like, okay. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, that's what it looks like in the text. Like, typical dude. You know what I mean? (laughs) It says he listened to the voice of his wife. Sounds a lot like Genesis 3. I'm bagging on you, woman. I'm just saying. (laughs) They take matters into their own hands. He sleeps with the maidservant, Hagar, just as his wife told him to, and she conceives. And after she conceives, she gets a little prideful and a little crazy. She's pretty proud of who she is and what she's been able to accomplish. And she starts um, having contempt for Sarah. And Sarah gets jealous and mad. And starts treating Hagar really bad until finally Hagar just bails. She's like, I'm out. And she runs off into the wilderness pregnant. And God meets her in the wilderness and says, uh, I, I see you and I hear you. And I need you to go back to Sarah, your master, and I need you to submit to her. And she does. And God also promises her that that child that she is going to have will be named Ishmael, and that he will have offspring that will also be ridiculously um, hard to count. (laughs) He will be a great nation, okay? And by the way, Ishmael means the Lord hears, right? Chapter 17, 13 years later, God comes once again to Abraham to reiterate his promise, to make his promise again, that being that he would give him a son by Sarah, his wife, by promise. And Abraham fell on his face and he laughed at God. Did you know that Abraham laughed first? It's weird. We always talk talk about the other one. Abraham laughed first. I don't know what that means, but I just thought I'd tell you that. Abraham laughed first. He said, really? Is a guy that's 100 years old and a lady that's 90 years old who's never been able to bear even in her prime, are we really going to have a child together? This is going to be the promise. This is going to be the way you do it. And then he goes, just use Ishmael. I already got a kid. It's Ishmael. Just can't you just do what you want to do through this one instead of this one? Right? And God says, no, no, he won't do. This time next year, you and your wife are going to have a son. You're going to call him Isaac, which means he laughs. Chapter 18, three guys pay Abraham a visit. Abraham feeds them. They sit down. They have conversation. They speak. And they say once more, the Lord, it says, says about this time next year, I'm going to return to you and your wife's going to have a son. And Sarah, of course, is creeping outside the tent, right? She's listening. And she laughs to herself. Not out loud. She laughs to herself. But God hears, right? And says to Abraham, like, Why'd your wife laugh? And she, of course, denies it. I didn't laugh. Because of the ridiculousness of the promise. Right? 21, that same time the following year, just like God says, God paid Sarah a visit. 
as he promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son named Isaac. And Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. And everyone who hears about this will laugh over me because I am old and I am done, and yet I nurse a child that is mine. And when Isaac got older, Ishmael mocked and laughed and treated Isaac horribly. And so Sarah sent Hagar and Ishmael packing into the wilderness. Was that close to five minutes? That's not bad. Some of you might be saying, what in the heck does this have to do with the Galatian church and what they're going through? I was thinking this this week. I'm scratching my head as I'm looking at this. Like, There's a lot of like good gospel examples, you know what I mean, of promise um, and slavery in the Old Testament. Like, This is kind of a weird one. Why, why would Paul pick this one, right? Um, I don't know if you know this, but if you don't, listen, okay? When we see Old Testament Scripture referred to in the New Testament by New Testament writers, whether it be Peter or James or John or Paul or Jesus, we ought to sit up and take special notice, We ought to sit up and take special notice of how they're interpreting that story, that Old Testament scripture, and how they're using it and what they're bringing out of it. Because what they're doing is they're teaching us how to read our Old Testament. They're teaching us how to improperly interpret the Old Testament. Paul says in verse 24 here in Galatians 4, this may be interpreted allegorically. In other words, we have permission A lot of times we go in and we make all kinds of messes with Scripture, depending on how it suits us. You know what I mean? We'll play all kinds of games with the rules of interpretation. Um, And it's really cool that Paul gives us permission here to know that this is how this should be interpreted. It's allegory. Yes, the narrative is real. It's real history with real characters in real places. It's a real story that happened. But because of Jesus, it's also allegory. You guys get that? Because Christ is real, because he is the thread in all of Scripture, because all of Scripture is about Jesus, there's a deeper deeper gospel meaning to the historical narrative. And Paul's showing us that. He's showing us the reality of that. And I know that this is really nothing new for you guys because you hear us talk about this all the time. We went through a few years ago uh, a series called The Big Story where we went from Genesis to the back of the book to show the meta narrative of Christ in and through everything. There's nothing in the Bible that is isolated from the redemptive story of God. Nothing. It's all to be uh, um, interpreted in that light. Now, in this allegory, one woman represents the law. One woman represents the promise of God apart from the law. So there's our setup. Okay, This is the point that's being made. The maidservant Hagar represents the law or slavery, and Sarah the promise of God or freedom. And Paul makes this quite plain here with very little guesswork uh, needed on our part. So Galatians 4 
21 uh, to 27 actually gives us that. Actually, 22 to 27, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by the free woman. But just as one, uh, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, one from Sinai bearing children for slavery, and she is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai. In Arabia, this is kind of weird stuff. Paul says that she represents Sinai in Arabia, which he then says corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Verse 25. Okay, what in the world is he talking about? What came from Sinai? It's not even I can even I can guess that one. The law. The law came from Sinai, right? What did the law do when it came? Feel free to answer. It bound us. It placed us in bondage to sin by exposing it, by showing us what sin is. It brought us into slavery. It makes us slaves to sin by the knowledge of sin. It's what the law did. Now, I want to say this, and I might get in trouble. Bear with me. I don't want to make anybody mad. Just consider this we american christians like to look at the holy land we like to look at the people of israel and we celebritize them as if they are special that's probably a bad comment if i stop right there but i'm going to keep going as far as history and the law goes they are special as far as the gospel goes they really are not In large part, they have rejected the promise. They have rejected Jesus, the promise, and remained in an allegiance to the law of works. Even today, what Paul is saying here is modern-day Jerusalem, physical Jerusalem, is not currently free under the promise of God in Christ because they've rejected Him. They are still currently slaves under the curse of the law, Sinai, Because this is what they've determined to keep themselves under. I like how the ESV study Bible puts it. The city of Jerusalem ought to be the capital city of Israel, of of the Israel of God. But instead, it remains a stronghold of Israel according to the flesh. That is, Jews who have not turned to Jesus. As a result, the city is just as it was when it was occupied in Isaiah's day. Enslaved which is where Paul pulls this quote from down here in verse 27. That comes out of Isaiah chapter 54, where he says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. What's being said here basically is at the time, Israel was in exile when Isaiah wrote that. And what's going on is basically what it's saying is the exile of the people of God in Isaiah's day was not the end of them even though it looked like it was. For God would once again work supernaturally to bring about a people. Paul goes on in verses 28 to 30 to say, Now you brothers like Isaac are children of the promise, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So also this is going on right now among you in Galatia in the church. And then he says, cast out the slave woman and her son 
For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. In other words, the same bullying and mocking and arrogance that went on back then between Ishmael and Isaac is going on right now with the Judaizers and the Galatian church, the Galatian believers. The same thing is happening. The children of the slave woman, those under the law, are provoking and pressing on the children of the promise to become like them. And he's saying, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Not only don't listen to them, but send them away. Verse 30, put them outside. Don't even keep them around. Just like Hagar and Ishmael had to be sent away. Send them away is what Paul's saying to the church. Stop entertaining them. Stop listening to them. Stop being influenced by them because you already have life. You already have freedom in Christ, and they're trying to rob you of that and make you like they are. And this is why we as pastors at the door spent so much time warning and exposing and harping on false gospels. It's because it's not a small thing for us to receive a a false gospel. It's not a small thing for us to be re, uh, um, influenced by a false gospel. It's, a, it's everything that we're not. And so, yes, we talk about the social gospel, and yes, we talk about the prosperity gospel, and yes, we talk about the works righteousness gospel, which is false, but it feels so right, and it seems so natural. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. It keeps us in slavery. It does not deliver us into freedom. The law of work seeks to strip you of the gospel of freedom and forgiveness in Christ and place you underneath the tyranny of bondage to a system of condemnation and guilt in which it is on you to be good enough. And you can't. You can't. You cannot be good enough. To earn what you need from God. Paul reminds them of this in verse 31. Brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We've been set free. Stop acting like Hagar's your mom. That's what he's telling the church. Stop acting like this lady's your mom, because she ain't. You are of the free woman. You are set free. You are set free from the law of sin and death, bondage, slavery. You've been set free from condemnation. You've been set free from guilt, from separation, from isolation, from the workload that never ends and is never finished. You've been set free. 5 1, he says, for freedom. Christ has set us free. Freedom from what? From dead works. Praise God. We've been set free from dead works. Christ has set us free from doing that which we are incapable of doing. So why in the world do you think, Galatians, it would be a good idea to go back? This is the summation of the allegory. Utterly simplified. Paul says in 5.1, stand firm. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You know what it means to stand firm? Stay where you are. 
Stay where you are. This is what we talked about last time leading up to this in Galatians, earlier in chapter 4, where he's telling them, don't go backwards. Stay where you are. And in a sense, in the way they're thinking, he's even saying, don't go forward. Like, stop trying to, stop trying to think you have to do something that only undoes the work that God has done. Just stand firm. Stand firm. Stay where you are. And this is our, our temptation, isn't it? This is our struggle. I know it's mine as Christians, as children of God, to buy the lie of Satan that he foists upon us over and over again. You aren't good enough. I hear it every day, at least once. You're not good enough. You can't possibly be saved. God can't possibly love you. I know he loves him and her and him. I I know he doesn't love me. God can't possibly forgive that thing. These things over here, it's a good chance he probably did. This one, he's never going to forgive. Christ never could have paid for that. This is the stuff that's always going on. In my mind and in my heart and in my ear, right? The devil is a master accuser, and you and I, we are master doubters. And in those times, we become just like Sarah... And just like Abraham, doubting the promises of God and turning to our own works. We turn to our own works to redeem ourselves and to bring forth life. And it's futile. Out of doubt and desperation, Sarah and Abraham took matters into their own hands. And what came out of their works? More heartache. More pain, more complications, more regret, and no justification and no solution for any of it because none of it was done by him. It was done by them. When we fail to rest in the finished work of Christ on our behalf and take matters into our own hands in regards to righteousness, we are essentially denying that God justifies us apart from our works. This is not a small thing. This is a big thing. This is not a small sin. This is a big sin, even our biggest. Back in chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says there, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, by hanging on a tree. But if we don't think that that was good enough for us, if we think that we need to add to the cross, then we're actually saying that we're not guilty. He is. This is why the Galatians are in serious danger. And this is why Paul isn't messing around. Like he's not messing around. He's just slugging away out of love. If these guys chose choose to follow these Ishmaels that are among them, often to the law, they're essentially denying the merits of Christ's righteousness and banking on their own. And that is ridiculously silly and sad. And yet we do this. Think about this. God is upstairs. God is upstairs in glory and majesty, power, in unapproachable light, holiness, righteousness. And we're down here making mud pies, right? And we're holding those things up to him every once in a while and going, isn't this great? Look what I made you. And he's going, no, I... 
I haven't seen anything great since Adam took a dive other than my son. Nothing. And yet we offer these things. Nothing that comes out of us, guys, is great until Christ goes into us. And even then, when something great comes out of us, it's his, not ours. I love the Augustine quote, Lord, anything that's good in me is due to you. The rest of it is my fault. That should go in your fridge. That's a good one. You see, Ishmael was ultimately rejected because he was a work of man due to unbelief. But Isaac, Isaac was accepted because it was a work of God done for us from outside of us. There are two things here in this narrative that I think are essential for us to to look at and mention and understand concerning the real gospel that the Bible teaches. These are true components, foundations of the gospel of the Bible found in this story. Okay? One, God makes a promise of blessing to Abraham and his descendants by himself. We're not allowed to participate. Back in Genesis chapter 15, and I think that Chad had actually gone through this a couple of weeks ago, He has Abraham bring those five animals that were three years old each, cut them in half, split them, because then two parties that were entering a covenant together, that's how it became binding, was that they would walk together through the middle of those pieces. But what does it say in that narrative? It says that when night came, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm hanging out with God personally, like Abraham, like it looks like Abraham was, like I'm going to make sure I don't go to sleep. Like, I'm going I'm to be like taking it in, right? I'm probably going to be pretty excited that I'm hanging out with God. That me and him are doing deals. And night comes and a deep sleep. So not just a sleep, a deep sleep. Like the dude wasn't there. He wasn't even conscious, right? And then it says in the narrative that there was a, a, a smoking pot and a flaming torch that were seen walking between the pieces. And then Abraham gets up in the morning and they just go on about their business. There's no like what happened or anything. God made the covenant with himself. He bound himself to the promise. And praise God for that because if Abraham was a part of it, the promise would be broken. You know what I'm saying? Like praise God. Praise God he didn't make it with a man. The second thing is, in spite of Abraham and Sarah's doubt and unfaithfulness in what they did, God delivers on his promise by performing the impossible. By performing the impossible. Remember when Sarah laughed? What was God's response? Is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard? Is there anything I can't do? Is it really that funny? Consider this. It was no more possible for Sarah to produce a child at 90 years old than it was for a young teenage girl named Mary to produce a child as a virgin. There is a connection between the two. 
Again, when God brings forth an unconditional promise, he's going to make sure that there's no way that man can put his finger on it and say, I did that. The glory is all his. We don't get to share in that. And so he does the impossible. Sarah's womb was dead. It was like a tomb. It was unable, incapable of bringing forth life. And God came to that 90-year-old woman that laughed at him and said, let there be life. And there was life. This is the same thing that he does to you, and this is the same thing that he does to me through the promise of Christ. When the gospel comes to us and penetrates our heart, the Holy Spirit comes to the door of our tomb and says, let there be life. Come forth. And he calls us by name. And we become heirs of the promise. He brings us out of slavery and out of bondage to the promise of life. And it's all because he determined to. That's the gospel. That's the most beautiful part of the gospel. Again, if, if there was any part of our salvation, guys, that was up to, uh, it, up to us, we would ruin it. I, I know you guys would. And I'm pretty, because <laughs> I'm one of you. I'm not trying to bag on you like I'm, I'm one of you. Like I get it. We just don't know how to do anything right. Um, we need the grace of God in heavy ways. And I know it's the same for the rest of you. If God doesn't do it, it won't be done. It's, it's not possible. And he shows us that here. He does the impossible because God is in the business of doing the impossible. He's able to. There are no laws of nature that are able to resist his power because he's the one who put the laws there. If he wants to bend them, twist them, turn them on his head, he can do that. If he wants to take a dead womb and make it bring forth life again, he can do that. If he wants to take a body of water and, and split the water down the middle so that people can walk across on dry land, he can do that. And if he wants to take people who are walking dead, who are corpses, who are, who are dead in their trespasses and sins and say, come and live again, he can do that. That's why I'm here. That's the only reason I'm here is because God brought life out of this dead vessel. And that's the gospel. Doesn't it just make you want to just shout praises to him? It's all him. It's all him. And this is what Paul wants the Galatian church to know they're looking at trading in. No way. No way. There is no other way. Closing. Um, just consider this because like we always talk about the door being a, a junk drawer of Christians, and we mean that in like a good way. I'm just like insulting everybody today. <laughs> we are junk drawer, meaning that we all come from like different like backgrounds, you know, as far as our Christian beliefs. A lot of us will read different books. We will gravitate toward different preachers, right? Um, we will listen to different kinds of podcasts. Like we all kind of, you know, we're mi- we're a mixed bag, right? And so this is why I want you to consider this, okay? On the heels of this, what kind of people in your life are you allowing to influence you? Consider the stuff you're reading. Consider the people that you're listening to. Consider the stuff you're listening to. 
What kind of preachers are you sitting under? Other than today, you're sitting under some pretty good ones. But, uh, <laughs> but if you go to, um, you know, Everyone's at the, the, the at the touch of a, a button these days. We can go. I do the same thing. I have my favorites that I go to, um, and I'll listen to these guys every day when I'm driving. That's the best way to drive, is you put on a good sermon, someone who's just gospel-centered and crazy for Jesus, and uh, you go down the road. Um, but there's a lot of garbage out there. What kind of preachers are you sitting under? What kind of voices are you listening to? Do they speak life? Or do they speak death? Because there are a lot of preachers in the church and voices in the church, authoritative ones, that do not speak life. They speak death. They're trying to put you back in bondage. Because they're talking all about what you need to do to get to him. Do they make him big or do they make you big? Do they speak promise or do they speak slavery? God, thank you for making good on a promise. Thank you, God, for determining to be mindful of a bunch of people who just messed things up. Thank you that that is somewhat of a measurement of your love for us that we can see when we look at the cross. And it is great. We thank you for doing all the heavy lifting at the expense of your son so that we may be free. And we attribute every bit of those glorious truths and the glorious benefits that we have in the gospel to your name alone. Amen.